Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's uh, Friday morning. I wanted to do this last night to get the overseas people always complaining, but um, just finishing up. I was doing a big lecture last night. I didn't finish till 10 something, so I was wiped out afterwards. That's just the way it goes. Uh, I'll try to get in now early as I can on Friday. Today's uh, podcast happens to be on the yard side of the sponsor. We have uh, someone sponsoring up here, uh, Reb Pinchas Karras from uh, Brooklyn, Karras. Who's uh, and tells me that his today is the yard side of his great grandmother. That's pretty good. You know, it's the grandmother's mother. The yard side is today, uh, and that's uh, <laughs> that's very nice. Her name is uh, Frechabas Rabbi Yeshua. Some have an Aliyah, as they always say, and uh, it's nice that be able to do Mamish this Dvar Torah on the day of the yard side Mamish, which is good for uh, for his chutzpah and neshama. As I said, I'm about to finish. Sunday night will be the last of seven talks I'm doing. Uh, what I do in May, June, this time of year, is I usually do something from more modern history, contemporary history. And I'm doing a series about Jews in war. Eventually, it'll be up on my website. You know, now I have this uh, YouTube website that my son set up. YouTube channel, I guess. Called Jewish History with Rabbi Dr. David Katz. That's the name of it. If you Google Jewish History with Rabbi Dr. David Katz, that's me. And we put up a couple of the old series so far, four or five or six. There's a whole bunch of them. Eventually, they'll uh, all be up. That's for the people who want to do the video. I know a lot of people uh, listen when they drive and that sort of thing. But, you know, when I do my talks, especially lectures, I have a whole uh, show that goes along with it, you know, audiovisual and that and the other. Uh, we should put some time into thought on how to do that. And uh, anyway, if you're interested in it whatsoever, you'll go to the YouTube channel, which is called Jewish History with Rabbi Dr. David Katz. Now, today's parsha obviously, is, is Shlach. And Shlach, immediately you talk about the Moraglam. You know, it's a funny thing. My shul in Baltimore, we haven't opened up the shuls yet. I'll say it again. What we've done is, you have know, a minion outside on the grounds. So, for example, in my shul, which is not a big shul, We've been having minyanim on the grass immediately behind the shoal with tents. And so that, that's the new normal. Uh, it so happens that the city government in Baltimore is still prohibited reopening shoals, as we would say, with regular. That may change soon. And the uh, only reason I'm mentioning this is because I'm now in a new normal because that means since March, when this all hit us like a thunderclap, you know, the corona junk, so... I don't know what the other shows did, but everybody did in some fashion. It's Zoom. Right now we live in the Kufa of Zoom. And uh, I find the way it's uh, evolved is that I have to give like uh, five talks a week to my Balabatim and to whoever joins on the Zoom. And so I ended up talking about the Parsha more than I ordinarily do during the week. And so a lot of the ideas that, you know, pop up 
Because once, you know, if you're me, then I like to go for a walk every day, you know, it's my exercise, so, you know, for an hour or so, hour and a half. And when I go, that's when I uh, think about these things. And uh, end up coming with all kinds of ideas about the parasha from the Zoom. So I'm going to share uh, a little of that and some of the things I didn't talk about yet. Um, so let me get right down to brass tacks. Obviously, if you're talking about Shlach, you're talking about the Meraglim. But then you're also talking about, I would say, at least to me, the Tzitzis, correct? Because at the end, you got the Tzitzis. Uh, My goodness, that's a biggie. That's, <laughs> that's antithesis of modern American culture. Let me put it this way. To me, living in Chutzlarz, Sinamraglam is no gea to the people living in Israel. And Delosa Surachil Vavcham Rechanichim is no gea to us living in America, uh, in the West, because of the consumerism, which is the all consuming God. Uh, our whole modern society uh, has evolved in my lifetime into an ultra consumerist, in which the economy actually runs on the basis of the public just buying a lot. And since you spend the money, that generates economic activity. That's why we have this crazy situation where America's got a 20, 30 billion, I'm sorry, 20, 30 trillion deficit, which is impossible. 20 trillion, 30 trillion is impossible. You can never pay that off. And instead of saying paying it off, they say, no, 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 don't do that. Keep uh, pouring money into the economy so people keep spending. So it's like, you know, you're near a uh, waterfall, but you say, keep paddling, because the minute you stop paddling, it'll go over the waterfall. And uh, our economy runs on the on, on the consumerism, and the businesses keep in business you know, as long as people keep buying stuff, and then the businesses pay the the, the the employees, and the police have money to buy from the business. You know, that's the basic economics of of the modern era. We're not into mercantilism anymore, or the old uh, economic systems of the past. So it's kind of weird this ultra super consumerism, and the Federal Reserve Bank. I'm no expert. I mean, I'm not an economist at all. So, speaking from a dumbbell point of view, what seems to me, the Federal Reserve System in the United States just keeps pumping money into the economy so that people keep spending. Uh, with the idea, if you stop, it's like drugs, you know, if you stop, uh, then everything collapses. And then we got hit with the corona. <laughs> right? All of a sudden, there's no consumerism. Well, let's put it this way. Of course there is. But it's a much reduced form. Much reduced form. Correct? You can't go out and shop. Simple as that. How many businesses are relying on the fact you go out and shop? Now you tell me like this. Well, you got the Amazon. You got the internet. That is true. And economy. And I got junk coming on my front porch every day. Like you do. It's not the same. It's not the same. And the stores that rely on you coming in and checking out, like the clothing stores that are the mamas and gawk that stores, as we all know. That's why Trump is sending money out to everybody. Now, that simply... It's very interesting to me because we live in a moment, a blip, when there's a crisis of consumerism. And we see what a major impact it has when everybody, you know, so many people are ruined you know, from this sort of thing. The lucky person is the one who's an employee of the government, you know, something like that. A steady paycheck. But a lot of people are not like that. Now, what's my point? This has been created in the last hundred years. And it's all based on the idea, so suru achrilavavchambachrinichem. What's consumerism all about? It's creating an economy where people want to buy and spend all the time, and that'll keep the, 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 the economic juices flowing. But in order to do that, you have to come 
the main goal in in all society comes to stimulate the consumerist, uh, what should I say, lust, the consumerist the desire to buy things. Because let's face it, half the stuff you have, everybody knows this. Half the stuff you have in your house, you don't need. Right? You picked it up here. You picked it up there. I'll just give you one example of a million. You go on vacation somewhere, right? To a vacation place or overseas or something like that. You buy junk. To be perfectly honest, and you know, you have like a memento, a souvenir. You don't need it. Okay? That's just one example of many. And uh, we live in entirely different, you know, and there's mass production. That's why the halachas and the Gemara are often out of date in the sense that the economics have totally flipped. In the time of Gemara, people didn't sell something unless they needed money. And a lot of halachas are based on the idea that the person who's selling is only doing so out of desperation. Now it's the opposite. Everybody sells. <laughs> you know, that's how you make a living. That's it, you know, that's how you make a living. And uh, there's nothing you have you don't want to sell for the right price. It's, it's, it's a new tukufa. In order for this to happen, so great engines of economic uh, institutions have been erected in my lifetime with the purpose of stimulating the acquisitive and the uh, consumerist uh, ethos. This has had, as they, as economic trends, mega trends always do, you know, a lot of spinoffs and what do we call collateral uh, results. One of the worst ones is, from the Jewish perspective, that um, it's it, it, since it's all about money, you, you go right away to the Yitzhahara, because that's where you can get people to spend. You understand? Anything connected to the Yitzhahara, people spend money. Uh, they will buy it, they will watch it, they will read it, they will do this, that, and the other. And therefore, to be religious Jew becomes difficult against the tidal wave of the consumerism. Uh, especially my kids, grandkids, kids growing up and all that. Now I hit with all these things they do all the time. And the internet, of course, is the greatest institution of consumerism, which has arisen in the last, what, 20, 30 years. And uh, it's getting more sophisticated all the time. Because their whole machias is to find out how we can sell you stuff. And you know how it goes. I don't understand the algorithms. But why is it that when I turn on, you know, go to a newspaper on the internet, I get an offer for a safer? They sucked me out. They know who I am. You get it? I'm sure somebody else is going to get a Catholic thing. Somebody else get a sex thing, you know? They they suck you out based on what, you, what you've what you gone online for. And so you're hit all the time with buy, 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 buy. Uh, a friend of mine here in Baltimore was telling me he's involved in a program which actually helps local restaurants and food stores in a certain way. I don't want to give any details. Nice fella. He's doing a chesed. And... Uh, uh, he's throwing funds at them. And he said he spoke to somebody here, and the store's having the trouble, never had trouble before. Why? Uh, I, it's a food store, it's connected with food, so people still eat. Well, there's no impulse buying. <laughs> Get it? That's what he said, which I never heard that word before. Let's try impulse buying. You know, you go to the supermarket, you intend to buy this, that, and the other, what your wife gave you in the list, and you end up saying, oh, I see this, I'll get that too. I see that, I'll get that too. There's the whole mysterious of supermarkets and stores is to stimulate you. So once you have an environment like that, it becomes impossible. Really. Really. Because what that means is you shouldn't follow what you see uh, and get stimulated by the lust of your heart and all that stuff. No. That's what all of modern economics is about. That's what all modern culture is about. See things. We want, we want things to cross your eyes. <laughs> right? And we want things to enter your heart. And that way... 
you'll conceive a desire to purchase it, and you spend money on it, and hopefully we'll get you hooked. Um, that's one of the, it's not the only reason, but it's one of the reasons we have all these problems today with um, drugs and booze and sex and porn and all that stuff, because it's constantly thrown in ways I don't think it was ever before in history. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but I believe I'm right. You know? Um, and it goes against all ethos. Now, that means that to be a religious Jew, you got to have a certain isolation, shall we say. It's not realistic. You know what I'm saying? After all the schmoozes are over, you live in the world, everybody's got the internet, everybody deals with the world, especially if you're involved in business or something like that. Uh, everybody goes out there, quote-unquote. Very few people live their whole life in Dalat al-Mashalacha, would be nice if they did, but it's not real. You understand? Most people got to work. And even if they don't work, there's all this stuff out there. And, for example, the utility of something like the internet is undeniable. If you know anything at all about the uh, Hebrew internet, there's a veldt out there in Torah stuff. There really is. There's a veldt. Uh, and if you know what's out. Well, anyway, you, you get what I'm saying. So no, sort of person to say I'm not having anything to do with all that. It's very, very, very hard. Now, um, let me put it this way. Uh, when the Torah says this, it was after the Meraglum, as we all know. And there's a specific historical context. And I'm sure you've heard the Mepharshim before. This ain't the first time you heard this. Velosasuru the word lasur is from touring or checking out or spying out. And we all know the Meragam messed up on that. Um, right? Vayasuru mitur ha'aretz. You know, when they checked out the land of Israel. So in other words, let me put it this way. It's very interesting. The Meragam story is one in which the spies went and they checked out the whole country in terms of national security. Hachazaku arofeh. They went to give like an intelligence report. You understand? Intelligence report. And very interesting. Moshe Rabbeinu does not warn them. Uh, don't, they didn't say that. Uh, he picked, they say, Russia, Israel, supposedly mature from guys, uh, men of stature, who um, were capable, of, presumably, of evaluating what they saw and bringing back an intelligence report, which, of course, they did. What Moshe was at, interested in was two basic elements. Military stuff. You know, what's their military situation? Do they have fortified cities and that kind of junk? And also economics. Right? Is a good land, a fat land, not fat land. And you and I know this story. Uh, Moshe didn't tell them and don't be seduced by the Canaanite religion or that kind of stuff. Isn't that interesting? You understand? Uh, he was evidently confident that they wouldn't be attracted by the Canaanite stuff. Why not? Let me put it this way. Let me put it this way. <laughs> this is just funny. Would you send a from guy to uh, Vegas? <laughs> you know what I mean? Give me a report on Las Vegas or some other uh, you know, uh, red light district or something like that. Give me a report. Because we're talking about Canaan. We just had it a few parishes ago. Whatever it says, Losasu. 
Canaan is all the land of the sex perversions and the incest and all this kind of stuff. Right? That's what we call the Canaanites. And indeed, you and I know that when the Jews will get to Israel, they will be seduced by the Canaanite stuff. As a matter of fact, if you take the trouble to read the Tanakh, you will see that the Jews, being Jews, outdo the Canaanites and the Amori and the others in perversion and idolatry. Uh, read the book of Kings and Chronicles, you know, Melachim, Diriam, that kind of stuff. And it will say that this Melech or that Melech led the Jews into acting worse than the Amori before them, worse than the Canaanite before them. Those are the, I remember a couple of kings in the north and the south, including Yehuda. I think Menashe, for example, the king of Yehuda, that's, that's a grandson of David Amalch, great grandson of David Amalch. They say he led the people doing things worse than been the case with the Canaanite. So it's very interesting, you know, Moshe sends these 12 from guys, and he says, check out the economics, and check out the other stuff, uh, and he doesn't warn them, you know, uh, and, and well, let's put it this way, give his report on the culture there, whatever. He doesn't want that, you know, he said, well, they're into this stuff, and they're into this stuff, and here's the, uh, uh, the porno stuff that goes on in Canaan or whatever, which is true. Uh, he doesn't do that. Instead, he just asks for the externals. But they're clearly affected by what they saw. You, you can't deny it, you know? They come back, and they don't mention this. That's just interesting to me. They don't mention, boy, I, I'll use modern terminology. You know, we checked out the land of Canaan. The women walk around naked. What they're dressed in is like, you know, Ocean City or something like that, Atlantic City. They don't talk like that. They talk of, they said the land is powerful, it's strong, but we're, we're scared of them. And, you know, that we, can't, we can't take them. They're too strong for us. Chazakumi menu, right? Chazakumi menu. Which, by the way, because I remember the Medrash says that the word menu in Hebrew has uh, two uh, translations, correct? I don't know if you know your Hebrew. Mimenu means then him, and mimenu means then us. So chazakumi menu could mean that the Canaanites are stronger than us. That's the plain meaning. Some say, they're stronger than God. Right? They're stronger than God. Uh, what does that mean? So the Pashup shot of that Medrash, if I can use such an expression with the Medrash, is they were so uh, terrified by uh, the military prowess of the Canaanites that they said they're so powerful that even God can't uh, beat them. They're stronger than God. And then you might say, this is a sign of how um, what's the right word, overwhelmed they were emotionally by what they saw or how little they still understood what God is. That's a whole regular quote-unquote yeshiva discussion. You know what I mean? Because it's, I'll say again, it's a medrash, and how could they say it's stronger than God? But to me, I could be wrong, I can always be wrong. To me, Chazagami Mena means their religion is more powerful than ours. You understand? In other words, their, their, their gods are stronger than God. I don't mean that they're more powerful than God, but let's put it this way, it's a foreshadowing of future of history. Because when we get to Canaan, uh, whatever happens militarily, whatever happens uh, economically, uh, they're going to take over us. Because their value, their, their, their way of practicing religion, which is full of orgiastic things. I mean, if you know the ancient Canaanite religion, it's all the fertility, human sacrifice, sex things, that's what it is. Right? 
That this was the headquarters of that. You know, Baal and Asher, these are sexual things. And I got news for you. Chazakumi <laughs> Menu. You know the the Jews will not be able to survive as Jews in this environment. And the the spies were not wrong. The reason I say this is because we have a book called the Old Testament. And it's called in other words, you look at the Yeshua Shoftim Shmo Malachim. And by the time you finish it, what what is that a story of? About a thousand years approximately, in which the Jews enter Canaan at the time of Yeshua, as you all know, and they take over most of the land of Canaan, not all. And uh, if you want to get very technical, it takes them 700 years or so to totally get rid of the total Canaanite presence in Israel. According to the Chazal, anyway, according to the Yushalmi, the last of the Canaanite areas was dispossessed by the Jews in uh, the time of Yerobim II. For those of you who are a little bit Tanakh experts, I don't expect most people are, uh, is Yushalmi and Chala. Okay, it's a heshiv, it's a gvul. They interpret, the Chazal interpret that to mean that he got rid of the Canaanites. That means for 700 years they were all around. It's too late, because what is the story of Yoshua, Shoftim, Shmuel, Melochim, Tevriyamim? It's not a pleasant story. Judaism enters the land of Canaan, but by the time the story's over, the Canaanites have conquered, uh, religiously, the Jews. Because what happens to the ten tribes in the north? They're wiped out, and we don't have Mariyam because they went in for the Zar. You see, in other words, so Judaism lost out in its battle against Canaanite paganism. At least among the tribes of, you know, uh, uh, Reuven and, uh, you know, uh, what do you call it? Ephraim, Menashe, God, Asher, you know, Naphtali, all those places. Pretty shocking. Right? And the ten tribes are lost from history. It's a machlokas in the Mishnah I want to point out to you. I always mention this. Whether they're ever coming back again. I think Rabbi Kiva versus Rabbi Lezer, and one of them says, they ain't coming back again. It's over. Uh, so, and, and then in the south, you, the kingdom of Yehuda, that you and I come from, we think, uh, again, by the time you finish Melachim, it's Tishabov. Bavel wipes out the south. So by the time the book of Kings is over, uh, there are zero Jews left in Israel. Zero Jews after Gedalia. Zero Jews left in Israel. And what does that mean? Uh, who wrote these? Well, Yirmiyahu, Hanavi, the Gemara says, wrote uh, uh, Malachim, and Ezra Sofer wrote the uh, Dibrayama. So these are people who said, how do we mess up? And the answer is, Chazakumimenu. To me, it's, it's just interesting, you know? Chazakumimenu. In the end, the Canaanite thing was right. So the Meragum so were kind of right. But on the other hand, let's put it this way. Maybe they were right because they had that attitude. You see, so much depends on your psychological state. So much depends on your psychological state. If you feel you can win, you win. Often. And if you don't feel you can win, that itself kind of makes you lose. So in the battle of consumerism, most of us feel, I feel, you know, you can't win. It's the wrong attitude. You can't help it. You're surrounded in America, and I repeat, this part applies to Americans more than Israelis, I think, although there's plenty, plenty of consumerism in Israel. But not like here. Uh... If you feel you can't win, then you, then you talk I can't win. You understand? And uh, that's how to get you. You understand? So, to use modern American terminology, uh, come on, get real. You can't go without an internet. Come on, get real. You can't go without a TV. Really. Come on, get real. You can't do without this. And next thing you know, 
come on, get real. You can't go without buying this uh, uh, bottle of scotch. You can't, don't even try. You, and, and eventually down to the level, you, you got to have these new potato chips. Come on, you you know you can't do without them. And it's it's Kumi Menu. It's interesting. Now, in the case of, so in other words, let's put it this way. The, the, the ultimate uh, failure of the Jews, which is the theme of the Nevi'im, Yeshua Shoptim Shom Lachem, the ultimate failure of the Jews in their first attempt to make it in Israel comes from To me, this is a very powerful uh, theme. Now, Moshe, now, by the way, Yeshua and Kolob said that's wrong. We can do it. Uh, it's interesting, Yeshua and Kolob said they're wrong, but we all know Kolob came close, <laughs> right? Because that's the famous story he went to Davin and the Mars Machpela, you know, uh, don't let me be swayed by what's swaying the others. And Yeshua is Kahoshiach um, Miasis uh, Meraglim. That, you know, Moshe gave him an extra name. In other words, let's put it this way Moshe Rabbeinu, like a Hasidic rabbi, gave him a special bracha. That's the meaning of that. Kahoshiach Miasis Meraglim. I assume you know what I'm talking about. So, what does that mean? Absent the bracha, Yeshua also would have been swayed. Absent. The special session in Mars Machpelah, Kalev would have been swayed. You have to understand how to interpret these chazals. Most people don't understand the, 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 the implication, the moral lesson of it. If the two Siddiquim who were able to stand up against the other Maragam were wavering themselves, and only because they got a special shot in the arm, that means absent that shot in the arm, you're going to go down. So let me put it this way I don't have no special bracha for Moshe Rabbeinu, Kahoshiachamatsis Maraglim, Kahoshiachamatsis consumerism. You don't have some special bracha like that. Nobody's putting an extra yun on your name. Uh, are you the type, like Kalev, that you go to Uman, you know, Nachum Breslover? You know, seriously, that's the origin of the practice of going down by a tzaddik. Because when it works, and it worked for Kalev, when it works, this connection with the past, you know, inspires you. That we maybe have a little bit. You know, uh, a lot of us who are trying to, you know, uh, keep our heads above the waters of consumerism. So you have to do with, you know, with the Mars Machpel type art. No, with your connection with your ancestors. That's a whole discussion by itself for another time. But it's just very interesting to me, as I said before, when we say, when the parch is all over and the whole business is over and everybody gets condemned to die in the desert except the children, and Moshe Rabbeinu leads the story on, as we all know the famous story, when it's all over, they end with the parsha tzitzis, in which they say, "Put these tzitzis on." So, if what I'm saying is true, then the purpose of the tzitzis every day, in our lifetime, is you put the tzitzis on and watch out for the yetsars uh, of, of consumerism, which are dominant in the in, in the culture of our time. Now, if I lived in another century, perhaps I would interpret it differently. You understand? Know if you live in the ancient times. You would say has to do with different idols. Today, idolatry assumes the form, as I see it, of the um, of the consumerism. You know, we're going to make you feel because they have expert um, advertising skills. Make you feel that you can't live without this item that you never even knew existed twenty four hours ago or even two hours ago. You see it, you got to have it. You understand? It's 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 very funny. You know, we never had this before in history to this degree. Uh, so you see the very interesting interplay between the Moraglam story on the one hand 
with its foreshadowing of doom and the uh, other, because remember, the Moragum say we can't make it in Israel. And eventually the Jewish people do not make it in Israel. After a thousand years, you end up with a situation in which the 10 tribes are gone. That's 80%. 80%. It's a repeat of what happened in Mitzrayim. When the Jews leave Egypt, Hamushim from Mitzrayim. 80% perished in Egypt or remained behind in Egypt, according to some. And when you get over here, it's 80%. Even today, in America, elsewhere, it's roughly 80% uh, off the derech. You see? When I say off the derech, they're going to disappear. To, to intermatch the assimilation and all the rest of it. It's, it's, it's just, uh, we all know this is fundamental contemporary sociology. It's 80%. Hamushim is, is not there. So, you see, the, the Torah engages very seriously with uh, real issues. That's how you know it's true, because of real issues that affect us uh, today. And um, that's aside from the details of the story. I mentioned the other day, uh, from a certain perspective, I happen to be interested, among other things, in the history of espionage and intelligence. And one of the things I'm interested in, you know, because of the history of wars and so forth, which obviously affect so much of, uh, of, of all history. And, um, you know, all the successful wars, you have to have a good intelligence system, know what the enemy's doing. Otherwise, you walk into traps, make big mistakes. History is replete with this. Intelligence failures and big mistakes. Israel had a gigantic intelligence failure in the Yom Kippur War, correct? You know that. And thousands of Israeli soldiers were killed as a result of that a terrible error. Um, everybody knows the information was there. They now have movies about this, about the Egyptian, you know, Nasser's son-in-law gave the information uh, because they had a certain mindset, they uh, ignored it. This is uh, famous stuff, which increases the tragic side of all these people died in the front lines of the Suez Canal and the Golan Heights, which they didn't need to. So, uh, intelligence is a very interesting uh, phenomenon. And uh, the state of Israel has always relied on, a, on hope, hopefully, excellent intelligence system. We like to think, we don't know. You know, they cover their failures. I'm talking to Mossad, the Shin Bet. Look, this is already addressed to the people living in Israel. If the Shin Bet isn't working 24-7, literally, and every day going into the Shtachim and, and, and taking out or capturing these bad perpetrators, You'd have a thousand uh, terrorist bombs every day. You know that's what the Arabs are. Uh, it's it's a, it's 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 remarkable. It's a continual form. There's no peace over there. It's just that the whole Israeli intelligence apparatus is trying to stay ahead of the terrorists, let alone the other countries. And a basic feature of the intelligence business is that you're supposed to separate the collection from the analysis. So let's say I'm setting up a spy system. I send out, I train and send out people to collect information. Uh, you know, here's a lady working as a, as a barmaid, so she'll listen to conversations. There's a person as a secretary, she'll, she has access to information, you know, that kind of stuff, right? You, you, you collect information, and then you send the information back to headquarters, and then the headquarters has a separate staff, if it's properly organized, and which what they do is they analyze the information. Because a lot of times... The, the spy will pick up stuff that's not actually true. You know what I'm saying? Not actually true. Uh, or cannot be understood except in a specific context. So in English, we call this today collect, uh, connecting the dots. Now, uh, in a good spy system, intelligence organization, you have excellent collectors, and then you have excellent analysts. And the analysts, they see a whole, from a whole bunch of different spies, 
and different sources of information. And hopefully they put together what they call an appreciation, you know, uh, a final picture, and that's what they present to the decision makers. So based on what we have from these five spies and this information here and this article here, we think they're going to attack us next week. You know, that kind of thing. So what's important in these situations is that you shouldn't mix the two together. The people who are doing the spying and the collecting information, that's one group, that's A. And the people doing the other thing is B. Uh, because the spy himself or herself doesn't see the whole picture. She just sees, you know, the thing that she's no gay to. Like I said before, she says, I heard these people, I'm a barmaid, and I heard these guys drunk talking about some uh, war they're planning, and now I'm giving information, and now I'm telling the whole business. But they don't know that elsewhere, these guys got together and said, we know there's, there are barmaids listening, so we're going to make up a story when we're in the bar. Uh, you know, so I'm just making this up. But the analyst, when he gets the information from the barmaid, then he gets the information from the other person, and says, oh, they were planning to tell lies when they're in the bar, and that's what she heard. But she doesn't know that. The reason I mention all this is because the Moraglam is a fundamental story of this confusion. And it's at the push-up shot level, uh, that's what happened, and, and, and that was the screw-up in this situation. Because, as you know the story, and I know everybody knows the story, who does know Pasha Schlapp? Um, the spies were told, go and uh, carry out a physical uh, espionage. Uh, you know, La Source Arts. Is, is the land strong? What are the people like? Are they powerful? Is it economically uh, uh, a fat land? And they did. And they came back, and what they told was true. You understand? As everybody knows, right? They said, you know, uh, uh, as far as the economics goes, here's the report. It's a good land. And we saw, you know, uh, these Gaisha nations over there, and uh, there's some strong people, and uh, fortified cities. Notice that's a regular. Espionage report, and they even said the Kanani and Mori live here, and the Amaleki live here, and so on and so forth, right? And uh, at that point, they fulfilled their mission. Now it's up to Moshe Minum and the other guys at Intelligence Analysis Headquarters to decide how to interpret and and and, and proceed. And even there, you, you might say, let me put it this way: after they finished that description. You'd have to look at this inside and see it. I mean, but if you want something interesting doing Shabbos, you'll look and see it. After they give it their report, which is a fair report, Kalev kind of um, messed things up, even though the Rashi says the opposite. Vayas Kalev is on Moshe, that Kalev, you know, quieted everybody, and he said, Olo Nalev Yerashno, say Yochman, we can beat these people. Well, they never said you can't. <laughs> you understand? The spies never said they can't. Now, perhaps... They implied that they were there, but once Kalev opened that up, so basically it's lonu chalal sam kichazak right? Uh, you know what I'm talking about? Sometimes don't even bring up a discussion because the other side will, 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 will turn into who knows what. So, like in America today, don't talk politics. Get it? Because you'll bring up Trump, this will bring up Biden, then the next thing you know, everybody's screaming at each other, all the rest. Don't, don't bring it up. So Kalev, for some reason... Uh, judge the situation such, it seems, it seems, that when the spies delivered their report, which was a basic collection report, and it was accurate, he saw that the, the people must have been murmuring, and Vayas Kalvalama Moshe, 
and 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 he said, you know, we can fight this war. Now, that wasn't the Nicole meant well. He said that wasn't his job. And opened the can of worms because then the spy said, well, actually, we can't beat him. And uh, you know, lo causing men are too strong for us. And then it goes on to say, and by the way, you know, Eretz El he he, you want to know the truth? It's a bad climate, and Anchemidos. Uh, and so on and so forth. No, but that opened the whole can of worms, and as we all know, that became the majority report. It's not the job of the spies to figure whether they can fight you or not. Their job is to, is to report, and that Moshe figure out, Moshe and, and his leaders to figure out, you know, whether or not they can go, and how to go about it. You understand? So if a spy says, oh, I saw so many tanks and so many planes, now you deliver your shot. Now it's up for the general staff to figure, can we do this, and if we can, how? So, crossing the boundaries from the collection to the analysis at the plane level, that, that, was, the, that was the big problem, because they were doing something they were not authorized to do. How do they know that they can um, uh, fight them or not pay, fight them? And more importantly, we know, and I said this the other day also, we know once they crossed over into the area of analysis, they got it wrong, because that's not who they were. They weren't trained in analysis. They were only trained in collection. Uh, how do I know what I'm saying? They immediately said like this, we can't beat them, they're stronger than us, and we're scared of them. Okay? We're scared of them. Eretz Ochelsi Yoshevel, he, v'cholam asherinim b'anshemidos, b'sham re'inu es abenei anok, and we saw giants, v'anehi b'inenu k'achagovim v'chene b'inehim. And we're like grasshoppers compared to them. You know the story. In other words, they're terrifying, and they terrified us. As Rashi or Chazal say, how do you know what you were like in their eyes? They immediately projected that they're so scary that they they, they make us uh, you know uh, terrified to, to even think about. It. They're 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 too vicious. They're too warlike. Now that wasn't true, and the reason we know it's not true is from the Haftorah today, which is very cute that we read in the Haftorah. As you know very well, the story of the two spies that were sent by Yeshua ben Nun ended up in Rachav right in Yericho. What's the key point in the story over there? Rachav helps them. I think you know the story. Rachav helps the two spies. And they say, why? And she basically says like this. Because you guys are going to win. It's clear you're going to win. The fear of you has hit us. And everybody's terrified of you. Because we've heard. Is this straight enough to her? We heard about Kriyas Yamsu, and about Sichonog. And she says, As soon as we heard, our hearts melted. Right? And nobody has any strength against you. No, everybody's terrified. So basically, the Meraglim were projecting their own fears. I said it wrong. Meraglim said that. You know, the Goyim are scary and the Jews are, are the ones who are scared, where really it was the other way around. It turns out, we hear from Rachel. Rachel was a guy. She was a Canaanite. And she said, no, no, we're scared of you. So that they, they, this was not their level of expertise. You know what I'm saying? Uh, Moshe had never charged them with this uh, task. Uh, their job is to report, uh, you know, what they saw and then leave it to the superiors. Of course, it didn't turn out that way, as we all know. And... Uh, by the time, so we had the terrible problem of the Meraglim that we're suffering from till today, because it's very uh, sad to think about the fact that 
Yeah, had a not a bragam. They would have gone from Har Sinai and pretty doggone quickly instead of forty years. They would end up taking over Israel, and as we just saw before, the Bayim Aslavenu, as Rachav said, you know, the, the the Canaanites were scared of the Jews, so it's a uh, it's just an interesting moment, you understand? And what they said, in other words, turns out to be turns out being correct. Now, there's a lot more to say on this subject. And I just want to make one point, which I actually spoke about yesterday. And that is, to me, uh, is this very fascinating? But look, by the way, look what's all in the tzitzis, you know? is a very uh, pregnant pasuk, full of meaning. But anyhow, uh, it's very interesting that, as we all know, this is one of the two occasions where God blows the top and Moshe calms him down. First at the uh, at the golden calf, at the Eglazov, Hashem says, I'm going to kill everybody, and Moshe says, calm down, calm down. And Moshe succeeds. This is his finest hour. And the second time is Meragam, where Hashem says, I'm going to kill everybody, and, uh, you know, I don't know, you know, and Sunni Amazeh, and uh, all that kind of stuff, right? And Armando uh, Loyaminubi, whatever the Pusik is, Akenu Badever Barishenu. I'll just wipe them all out with a Dever, with a plague. Yeah, done, I've had it with the Jews. And Moshe comes in down, you know, don't do that. Um, what will the Ganyam thing? And so on and so forth. And he culminates it by saying, uh, it's just very interesting to me. I mean, like I said, I mentioned the other day that uh, this is one of the highlights of the relational uh, story of Shmos and Bayukh Bamidburn Dvarim, particularly Shmos Bamidburn uh, Dvarim, of this relationship, this partnership between God and Moshe. Which is uh, not philosophical at all, uh, you know. From the Maimonidean philosophical perspective, the prophet is here. He gets enlightenment, and then he tells the story. He tries to explain what 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 he got by uh, in terms of communication from upstairs, the ESP. But it's not like that with Moshe. Moshe is like a husband and wife, because Hashem gets angry and Moshe says, "Calm down," and he succeeds in calming him down. What happened in last week's parsha? Which was what the Balosha, right? Um, Moshe gets angry. He says, "I can't stand the complaining of the Jews about the food. Kill me, What I can't stand this anymore. What was this? Moshe lost it, and Hashem said, "Calm down, <laughs> right?" Hashem said, "Take it easy. We'll get you seventy helpers. We'll make this work." So, it's what I call always a uh, a good marriage. Um, a good marriage is where each one calms the other one down. You see? It's possible for a husband to blow a top. Then the job of the wife in a good marriage, in a functional marriage, is to uh, ease that situation. And sometimes the other way around. Sometimes the wife blows up. Uh, there's nothing hypocritical about it. You can't, the husband can't say this. What are you getting angry at me for? You got angry another time yourself. A functional relationship is that they both realize from the beginning it's not good to lose your temper and, not, and blow up and, uh, you know, cause this and that and the other. Uh, and the other one should be there, Azer Konegdo, right? The other one's there to say, uh, my uh, best job over here is to uh, calm you down. When Hashem gets angry, Moshe calms you down. When Moshe gets angry, Hashem calms down. And because they work like that, so that's how they're able to get the Jews to the Promised Land. Right? It, it, it's just very interesting. And even though Hashem and Moshe once in a while have their disagreements, it's very much like a husband and wife, like you know, like a real partnership. 
And the Torah is given in this form, as you know, obviously. You know, the Torah is not given in the form that a message came from above and just descended in terms of grace upon the consciousness of the people and inspired by this God, intoxicated knowledge, they proceeded to the promised land and all the rest of it. It's a story of two people. Well, not two people. It's a story of two personalities, the way it's presented. It's Hashem and Moshe, from the burning bush to the death of Moshe. And from the very beginning of the burning bush, at the snare, he already had issues. You know, Hashem says, I want you, I want you, I want you. Moshe says, get somebody else. I'm not the person you want. I'm a Clyde Pair, and so on and so forth. And the Chazal say, they, I think they argue for seven days. And uh, eventually, I'm ordering you to take this job. But on the other hand, uh, and, and everything that happens afterwards is, is through this relational um, situation. The Yitzhak Mitzrayim, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments, the Egel Azov, the Meraglim, and all the other, next week, Korach. All these stories, always in the context of, of these two. Right? Now, uh, I'm not sure exactly philosophically how that works. God is not a personality, but having said that, the Torah presents it in the form, obviously, that we that we understand it. And in traditional Jewish thought, it is indeed the supreme task of a Moses to do what I just said, which is to calm God down when He gets angry at the Jewish people, to defend the Jews even when they do the indefensible. Hear what I just said? To defend the Jews even when they do the indefensible is the supreme task of Moshe Rabbeinu. I've spoken about this before. Misil Sharm is very eloquent upon this and all the rest of it. The true shepherds of Israel are the ones who, you know, will, will try to argue a case. Even the case is an impossible case to argue. And I'm sure Moshe Rabbeinu, particularly the day goes up in the Maraglam, was surprised when Hashem said, all right, salach, you know. Uh, but Hashem wants that. The way we understand this is it's part of the, of the grace of Kla Yisrael. Individuals are punished for their actions. And all the individuals who were bad by the Maraglim perished. But the claw is not punished. Right? Meaning, the claw is not wiped out. History is replete with dozens, maybe hundreds, I'm sure hundreds, maybe thousands, of nations and ethnic groups who have disappeared. Right? They no longer exist. Not in their recognizable form. I don't know if they were literally exterminated or maybe they just blended into other groups. But these cultures have disappeared. We're like the only one of the only ones. I mean, you got the Chinese, a couple others. We're like one of the only ones, and uh, it's not because we're so righteous. That's clear from the way the Torah is written. You know, uh, I don't know if I should tell you this. This guy called me up the other day. I mentioned it somewhere. Let me think. I don't know. I'll just share it with you. This guy called me up the other day. A from guy, and. Apparently he's reading the New Testament or something like that. I know it sounds tr- strange. I'm just telling you what happened. And uh, he's telling me, you know, Jesus sounds so great and this and that and the other. And uh, it's a little bit of a screwed up guy. It, it, doesn't, it didn't mean bad. It didn't mean bad. And I guess he called me because, oh, if you have any weird stuff there, call me. And the point I'm trying to make to him is like this. It's a, well, we had a long conversation, but the point I'm trying to make is like this. In the New Testament, nobody ever makes a mistake. Everything is wonderful. You know, if uh, but the Old Testament isn't like that. The Jews make mistakes. The Claudius Israel is full, replete with mistakes. The job of the Moshe Rabbeinus is to defend the Jewish people and, 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 and keep them moving along, even with the mistakes. That is actually real. There's no... 
The problem is you and I live in modern period, and the firm world doesn't feel comfortable with the concept of a tzadik So if you ever read what they call the art school biographies, everybody's perfect. Nobody ever made a mistake. And the whole world knows it's not exactly true, but we want to read this for various reasons. You understand? It's like Walt Disney. They have a good brand, and everybody reads I'm not interested. Well, I actually am, but most people aren't interested in, you know, the mistakes and flaws of famous people in history. And I don't go around telling them. You understand? Half of what I do is keep my mouth shut. Because um, not necessarily everybody's business, seriously. On the other hand, when you know somebody was this way and somebody was that way, you know it's a real story. Because you look around you, nobody ain't Sadiq Barzashilayyech up. Um, a lot of Hasidic groups will build a whole thing around the idea their tzaddik was low yachta. Well, no, no such thing. It doesn't matter, though. The, the sublime story is that even if the Klai you know, rebelled against Hashem, Moshe's still there to say, Slachno, Lavonazem, Kigoro Chastech, Vasher, Nasoslo, Lemitzrayim, or whatever the Pasig is. So these are uh, a couple of very, very powerful themes. They strike me in Shlach, and I think they're relevant to the world we live in. The uh, the nice stories in which nobody ever does anything wrong are, you know, they're not real, let's put it that way. They don't correspond to the realities we see it. Uh, at least that's my opinion. All I ever give you is my opinion. Now, I've, I've spoken enough today. That's enough for today, so I hope everybody have a good Shabbos. And um, soon, <laughs> this Corona thing should be past us. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.